Hello and welcome to Running on Joy with Francesca Goodwin, the podcast that celebrates putting one foot in front of the other in whatever form that takes. This is a podcast that explores how we can live in a more connected, creative and compassionate manner for the benefit of our communities, our planet and our own mental and physical health. I'm your host, Francesca Goodwin, and every week I'll be asking a new interviewee what joy means to them. Running on Joy is ad-free, but if you enjoy the show, please do take a moment to leave a review and give feedback wherever you listen to your podcasts. You might also consider supporting the work of Running on Joy guest Dan Lawson through rubbish shoes and rerun clothing to end the cycle of wastage in the sports clothing and footwear industries. Follow at Rubbish Shoes and at Rerun.Clothing on Instagram for further information. Hello everyone, happy Monday, or it will be a Monday when this comes out. My guest today is a conservationist, author, speaker and presenter from North Norfolk, where they live in a flint cottage by a duck pond with their three-legged lurcher and a flock of rescued animals. For 10 years they lived in South America working with conservation NGOs such as the WWF and Wetlands International. They also spent three years in Asia and have worked with wildlife on every continent. Since their return to the UK, they have worked for the Norfolk Wildlife Trust, the Wildlife Trust and the Hawk and Owl Trust. Having crossed the globe in search of wildlife and swum and snorkeled in every world ocean, they have become more and more invested in adopting a low carbon lifestyle and are a committed cyclist and a keen runner. In fact, having just spoken to them, they've just come back from the gym this evening. (laughs) I'm speaking to them today upon the publication of their book, The Meaning of Geese, a memoir of seven lockdown months in 2020 to 21, during which they cycled 1,200 miles around North Norfolk on their mother's 40-year-old bike, following the great flocks of Arctic geese whose wild cries haunt the county each winter. There is so much to talk about here that it's really difficult to know where to start. So I'll just begin, as is customary, by inviting them to now introduce themselves in the manner of their choosing and with the correct pronunciation of their own name as well, which I've just been briefed on. (laughs) Thank you very much for that generous and welcoming introduction. Uh, My name is Nick Atchison and I am a conservationist. So yes, I see you smile there. That is the correct pronunciation. Only today I was on a local radio station um, where the presenter knows me well and where where I appear very regularly and they got my name wrong. And so I always have to say it's Atchison, but my name is Nick Atchison and I am indeed a conservationist and an environmentalist. I live in North Norfolk close to where I grew up. And then following that, I went to AT University, did a master's degree following my undergraduate degree, then ended up in Bolivia, where I intended to go for three months and ended up for 10 years. And following that, I have had the enormous privilege of working with wildlife and with people all over the world. But now, as as you say, I've tightened my climate and environmental belt and live only as far as I can get by land and as much as possible travel on my ancient bicycle, rode it once last week, um, and on foot and just around the Norfolk countryside, which is very much physically and spiritually my home. 
Wonderful. Thank you so much, Nick. And everything that you've just touched on is is certainly um, something that I've explored a lot on this podcast and very much advocate for myself. So I'm really excited to connect and to delve further into, into lots of those themes um, this evening. And you mentioned that you're living close to where you grew up. So can you just take us back to those early years and what that childhood looked like in Norfolk? Yes, I was very lucky in that I grew up in a North Norfolk village in a house with a garden that stretched out onto the fields and we knew the local farmers so I had permission to go onto their farms and walk in the woods and go out onto the fields and look for wildlife. So on the on the same red bicycle um, I was riding back then or at least when I was once my legs were long enough to ride my mother's bicycle prior to that it had been smaller versions I cycled around the village uh, teaching myself about wildlife and I had the enormous good fortune at my secondary school to encounter a teacher who has been a huge influence on me in many, many ways, but he was the one who took me under his wing and taught me about nature and taught me the names and the songs of grasshoppers and the names of the flowers that we saw and taught me about different habitats and the species that lived in them. And that opened my eyes to an understanding of the world. Uh, and that was really the, the thing that set me on a path of loving wildlife wanting to know about wildlife but also wanting to share it with other people and in my teens I became a volunteer at Pensthorpe which is a nature reserve just up the road and that's where I led hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of walks showing people wildlife and explaining to them and in a sense taught myself about communication about wildlife and uh, dare I say, infecting people with a love of wildlife in the same way as kindly mentors had infected me and shared their passion and their tremendous knowledge. It's interesting that you use the word in, infected there, because obviously what we'll come on to um, with your book is, is that you gravitated towards connecting with the geese during the pandemic as well, which is a different kind of infection. But thank goodness that you were infecting people with your voice and connecting through nature. And it sounds like your your kind of affinity for the outdoors is very much kind of born of a, a sort of intellectual curiosity. Am I correct there? As, as well as a kind of instinctive, intuitive one? Yes, both. Very much both. That's That's well observed. I... I am at home in the outdoors and it fills me with joy and I walk and I watch. I mean, just this morning I was sitting, there's a pond, just a few, I'm pointing outside my window. There's a pond just outside the front of my little house. And today, when I should have been editing a magazine, I was staring out at the ducks on the pond and spotted a shoveler. And um, we have shovelers very rarely on the pond. So I went outside to have a look at her and talk to her and avoid doing the work that I was supposed to be doing. So outdoors is my happy place, but it's also a place I want to understand. But that's understanding on many different levels in that I, it's not just an intellectual naming it's also understanding the layers of meaning in the landscape, how different people react to it, how different species react to it and move through it and exist in it. So it's, yes, definitely fed by a, an intellectual desire to understand, but there's also a connection that goes much deeper than that. 
Yeah, it's a different kind of naming to say so there's that line in The Little Prince um, that the fox says about once you've named me, you've tamed me and kind of have sort of, it's an idea of kind of having dominion over over animals and wildlife. I think what's what you're saying is there's a, there's a heart connection there as well, rather than just a labelling. Very much so. And in fact, one of the things that I, one of the points I make in the book, and I've said in a few interviews and things that I've done recently is that one of what what thrills me about the geese is how small they make me feel how I feel as if I'm a tiny fragment of their landscape when you see these enormous flocks overhead yapping in the case of the pink-footed geese or burbling in the case of the Brent geese you feel humbled by the migrations that they undertake and you feel you know your place in the scheme of things, which is quite rare for us humans. I'm interested actually kind of thinking about um, names and, and we have <laughs> we have looked at your name in particular um, and you just touched on there this idea of how um, how spectating the geese kind of makes you you feel in yourself. And I'm curious, like your, your connection with the outdoors obviously came from when you were a teenager and growing up and that is part of growing and exploring your identity as well and how much of being outside allowed you a sense of kind of finding yourself oh absolutely core to my being i would say both from childhood and then my teens here in norfolk and then during my first degree i went to live in the south of france in the camargue um, which was utterly, utterly wonderful. And it was the first time I was in truly big landscapes. And in a sense, the bigger the landscape and the smaller I felt, the, the happier I was. The more sky there was, the more wild there was, the more space there was, the happier I felt. Um, and then from there, I went back to my university and finished my um, undergraduate degree, started my master's degree and went to live in South America, where really there are still vast, wild spaces. And, and it was both through living in those vast, wild spaces and coming to some sort of understanding of them that I became passionately committed to them, but also through working with the people whose cultures have lived in them for millennia. I, I, in a sense, much of my Western education was unpicked. And I came to see the world in a different way. And that was that probably was the biggest privilege of my life to be re-educated. Having gone to a very academic university, having done an undergraduate degree and a master's degree and having been told by the Western mind that I'd achieved understanding of things, I realized I didn't understand anything. Mm, that's interesting. So literally again, being made to feel sort of small in, in, in mm. the face of knowledge that was more, um, I guess, about interconnection with the natural world, I suppose. Yes, and I'm very, very interested in this, this idea of reading landscapes. It might not be landscapes. In my case, I talk about nature and conservation, but I've often thought about an event. It would be quite physically demanding, but it, it would be, let's say, an, a day, and for six hours, you would walk, but each hour did the same circuit and you were led by a different person who saw the landscape in a different way. So you might have a, a historian who studies 
Paleolithic cultures, or you might have an, a farmer who sees profit and use in the land, and you might have a botanist who can tell you about the soils through what plants are growing there, and you might have an artist who reads the sky and the clouds and the light, and each person is seeing that landscape in a completely different way and has something beautiful to share from it. Mm, and I'm hearing there as well that there's you're differentiating between landscape and nature with a capital N um, and the way that you talk about that, do you think that landscape is much more kind of to do with, with movement as well, how you move through a landscape? Hmm, I'd never, I'd never made that connection, I suppose. Uh, a landscape is inherently about how we move through it because, because to understand it, you have to explore it. And that can be, in your case, running, in my case, in the book, cycling. Um, in the case of indigenous people with whom I worked in South America or with whom I've worked in other parts of the world, it might mean hunting or it might mean collecting some resource from the sea. And so it is, as a species, we are, we're a forward moving species. You only need to look at our eyes to see that we're a forward moving species. Most mammals that get eaten by other things have their eyes on the sides of their heads. And indeed most birds do because they're scanning the whole time around them, looking for threats. And yes, we've evolved in landscapes of threat, although for the most part, the pandemic notwithstanding, we're not threatened by a great deal in our global north lives these days, but we move, our eyes being on the front of our faces makes us a predatory animal and it means we move forwards through landscape, looking forwards. Huh. Well, yes. I do. And and that's really, you've used the word vulnerable, but for me, I, I use the word small or humbled by the geese that I love, that I feel small beside them. And vulnerability, and we only need to look at Turkey and Syria this week to see how vulnerable we can be. But in our hubris in the global north, we've largely moved beyond a place where we feel vulnerable in the day to day, which is why the pandemic was so traumatic and so difficult, or I say was, the, the pandemic has been, because many, many people still live in grave fear of COVID, and rightly so, because of their health conditions. Um, the pandemic has been so trying because for the first time in a very long time, we are vulnerable to something and we are humbled by it. Mm. Was that something that you're aware of because I'm. I know that during the pandemic, your your mother was shielding, was she? So you were you were sort of separate to her, right? So I guess that perhaps vulnerability was something that was quite at the forefront of your mind during that time. I mean, it was on everyone's mind, but um, perhaps particularly in your case. I I don't know more so in my case than anyone else's because, as you say, everyone was vulnerable in a way that most of us had never experienced. But yes, I do have a personal story to tell, which part of which was that my mother had a significant health diagnosis just before the pandemic. And almost two weeks after that, she was told she was shielded. 
So it was all very, very sudden. And that meant that I couldn't really be there for my parents, who are now quite elderly, during the pandemic in the way that I wanted to. I couldn't be, I, I could only stand several metres apart in their garden talking to them for months on end. And that's not unique by any stretch. Millions of people across the world lost loved ones or had lost their jobs or their livelihoods or had their lives turned upside down because of the pandemic. But yes, my experience was indeed of, of vulnerability and, and fear. Fear that COVID would get into my parents' household because of fear of what would happen to them. But that again is something that unites us across humanity because we've all experienced the same, that same fear. And obviously you, you are now at home in Norfolk and we're, drew, we're drawn back. Um, and, and you touched on the fact that you, that you traveled the globe before that. What did bring you home? What was the lure of coming back to Norfolk after all of these kind of far-flung adventures? That's a very, a very pertinent question and touched on in the prologue of the book. Um, I had been 10 years in South America and I had a lovely life. I had dear, dear friends. I had enough work to keep me busy, working for conservation organizations and sustainable development organizations. I had dear friends I lived with. I had adventure, so much adventure. But I was home for Christmas once. I, I hardly ever came home. I couldn't really afford to be flying backwards and forwards. But I was home for Christmas and I went for a walk with a friend. And it was a time I was mulling over, where's my life going? What's going to, what, what's the next step? And at the time, my grandmother was still alive. My grandmother and I were thick as thieves. We were the closest of friends and she was a huge and benign influence in my life. And I wanted, I realized I wanted to be with my flock as it were. I realized I wanted to be here for the rest of her life. And the, the first of my seven nephews and nieces, my oldest niece had been born at that point. And I realized I very much wanted to be an uncle. And then I was walking along on a bright, beautiful day with an old, old friend. And we were along the coast, of course, and there were geese, of course, there were Brent geese. And he and my binoculars were back in South America where I lived and worked with them. And he handed me his binoculars and I lifted them up and I saw a much rarer goose, a, a black brant from the Pacific in amongst the flock. And on this bright, clear late winter day or midwinter day, I just felt at home. And I thought, right, now's the time. I'm ready to come back. So many things are calling me back. And I was very lucky to get a job straight away at Norfolk Wildlife Trust, um, which was followed by another job at Norfolk Wildlife Trust when that one, it was a relatively short term contract. So I was very, very, very lucky in the way that I moved back that things, they fell into place. If you live anywhere near the coast in Norfolk, they are the spirit of the winter. You can't move along the coast for their flocks. So we get up to 100,000 pink-footed geese. They come to us from Iceland and from Greenland. 
arriving in September and leaving really now in, in mid-February. By the end of February, the vast numbers of pink-footed geese have, have gone. We have very few left by the beginning of March. Um, and during the middle of the winter, from the time when the sugar beet begins to be harvested until probably within the last couple of weeks, depending on the sugar beet harvest, the pink-footed geese roam over much of Norfolk in huge flocks. You can see 20,000 of them in a field. And they have this bright, shrill, beautiful call. And everyone who lives here rushes outside to see them or stops beside the fields where they're feeding because there's so much part of our lives. And then if you're walking along the coast, in the salt marshes and the grazing marshes immediately next to the salt marshes, you'll see Brent geese, who are the little black geese that come to us from Siberia. And a few thousand of them come to Norfolk every year as well, probably in the tens of thousands. The British winter population of them is up to about 100,000. And I would guess a significant chunk of them come to Norfolk, maybe up to a third, but that's a, a bit of a guess. And they have this deep, throaty, chesty, burbling call. And so you, you can't move along the coast without seeing them. And when the pink feet are roaming over the countryside, you can't go anywhere in North Norfolk without encountering them. They're the soul of the place in winter. It sounds so much the way that you describe um, the connection of the community as a whole to the birds. It does make them sound really quite folkloric in a way and a species that lends itself to storytelling. That's exactly right. And it's why I called the book The Meaning of Geese, because I spoke throughout the book, both in person. We weren't allowed in each other's houses at the time, but I spoke out in the field to friends who were watching the geese and studying the geese. I spoke to people who shoot the geese, who, for whom harvesting a small number of geese. I'm a vegan, so I come from a very different point of view. But for them, they see themselves as predators along the route of the geese in the way that a fox might be or a peregrine might be. And I wanted to understand what the geese meant to them. I spoke to friends who paint the geese and the landscapes in which the geese feed and through which they move. I spoke to people who work in the conservation and academic study of the geese. And as the geese went home in the spring, well, late winter time, I spoke to people in Lancashire where the pink-footed geese stayed before they go on to Iceland and found out about what the geese mean to them in their landscapes. And finally, I spoke to two academics in Iceland and found out what the geese mean once they reach home, the summer tundra. And that's why the book, as I say, is called The Meaning of Geese, because they do they're more than the sum of their parts. They're more than just a bird. They're, they're, a, they're a touchstone in the navigation of our year. And a sort of un, unseen network of connection between such a diverse chain of, of people in different countries as well. Absolutely so. And I talk about a number of either ringed geese or highly distinctive geese and the journeys that they take and how different people witness them along their journeys. And this is something we've known about since the 1940s when Peter Scott was writing about particular pink-footed geese in the flocks around his home. And you, you speak there about kind of, as I said, connecting a, a broad range of people across space. 
Does watching the ga geese also give you um, a kind of different sense of time as well, both in terms of sitting and watching them, but also kind of marking time seasonally too? Absolutely right on both counts. I I would cycle for usually minimum of 10 miles out and 10 miles back every day that when I could. Um, and I would then find a flock of geese and without disturbing them because the pink-footed geese are quite jumpy, they're quite nervy. Um, they're disturbed a lot by the farmers because they're on the farmer's fields. I would creep into the hedge and then sit or stand with a telescope and meditate my way through the flocks. And sometimes I might be standing in the hedge for five or six hours, completely lost in the lives of the geese, projected through a telescope, which I'd taken with me in the panniers on my bike, into the lives of the geese and have this extraordinarily privileged view of their lives over hours in some cases. But also you're absolutely right that it's it's a matter of the the shape of the year because when the pink feet come back to us in September, it is a thrill. And then when they begin moving around as the sugar beet begins to be harvested, it depends what the year has been like, how how when the sugar beet begins to be harvested and how much they move around but when they start spreading out everybody lights up with excitement and shares news on whatsapp or on social media about where they're seeing the geese and people share videos of the geese flying over their houses and then there's almost a sense of loss i'm a spring creature i'm a i'm a slim creature i don't like being cold i lived in amazonia for 10 years in a pair of shorts and a t-shirt i i like to be warm but it's no exaggeration to say i mourned the leaving of the geese at this time in the year that i spent cycling after them at this time of year, I really got quite low because the geese had been, they'd been my friends, they'd been my flock throughout the winter. And then they left and it was hard to make sense of that. And again, it, it sort of mirrors, I think the kind of general loss of tradition and folklore almost that, that we have experienced. I guess that there has been some resurgence in that that I think people are embracing more in the kind of notions of pilgrimage and the old ways and travel by foot and things but I think we we've and it's something that I know that you speak about a lot that kind of disconnection from the land that we we are kind of in a period of mourning and and grief in a way that we're not even really aware of I think we don't we know are and if you are. think back in, in the global north, only four generations, and in much of the global south, one or two generations, people, the vast, overwhelming majority of people lived close to the land and needed to have a meaningful relationship with and understanding of the land and the resources that come from it, the times of year when it changes, the dangers that lie within it. So if you, I, a friend of mine in India was, was killed by a cobra, for example. And if you are a, a rice farmer in India, you've jolly well got to know about cobras because co rice fields fill up with rats and cobras chase the rats. And so rice fields at harvest time are full of cobras. And there is very real danger to people and we have, blinded ourselves to that kind of knowledge. We've done everything in our power to step away from our ecological literacy, from our 
deep connection with landscape and with land and with our place in it. And that's dangerous both for us because we, we are a species. There's a great deal of scientific research that shows we function best in the outdoors. We function best when we have access to green places, wet places, that we're outdoors exploring. We're happiest and fittest when we're outdoors in the wild. But also it's harmful for our future because the less we see nature, the less nature features in our lives, the less we care. And we're kidding ourselves if we think we can survive on this planet without nature. Because we sit here talking to one another via the miracle of Zoom, though other platforms are available. But we, um, <laughs> um, but we, we talk via the miracle of Zoom, and that has been an incredible boon for us during these lockdown years. But we're digesting what we've eaten today. We're breathing oxygen or breathing air, but using oxygen that comes directly from plants, inescapably so. And we are, I have my fire, I don't heat my house except for a fire and my fire is burning and I'm grateful to the tree that fell down that my father hacked up and brought here that I'm burning and I'm wearing clothes, no matter how modern the fabrics that we wear, ultimately they come in some way from the natural world. And all of these things are, given to us by the natural world and yet we seem to be doing our very best to turn our backs to the natural world which is both emotionally and physically to our detriment but also ultimately detrimental to our survival as a as a species we are just another species on earth mm. and do you think some of your um your motivation for writing about this experience is to bring the lens through which you connect with the geese and with the natural world to kind of hold that frame up so that other people can gaze through it and learn learn about that world and that species so that they can also grow to love it and protect what they love that's that's a very flattering way of putting it and i don't think i could say those words myself but but yes if I have one thing that I can do, it's sharing a love of nature and wild place and our place in it. And so that is ultimately the motivation for writing about it. And I've been writing, I've written in a number of books previously, and I've written hundreds, if not thousands of articles on the same theme about nature, encouraging people to love and protect and preserve nature. But it took the pandemic to get me on a 40, at the time, 42 year old bicycle, cycling 1,200 miles by myself <laughs> um, over a seven month period following the geese. And the words sort of tumbled out of me. I would get home exhausted, physically exhausted, and words would tumble from me and onto the page, although obviously onto a computer. At the, uh, we don't put things onto the page quite so much directly anymore, but they've ended up on the page and I'm, I'm very, very, very grateful to the people who pick it up and who read it and who make it theirs because it ceases to be yours. You give it to people and they make it their own. And 
can I ask you, I, I did brief you a little bit beforehand, um, if you wouldn't mind reading uh, from the book in one of your descriptions of the geese to give people a flavour of what seeing them through your eyes is like. Of course, I'll read you a passage from the first great flock of pink-footed geese that I saw. So this was 10 or 15,000 birds and I spent a very cold six hours watching the geese and finding a number of rarer species of geese amongst the pink-footed geese. But this is a, just the first time I really describe what a pink-foot looks like to me. A pink-foot's shoulder feathers are a gentle bluish-grey, finely tipped with buff. This blue is clearest when the goose is on the wing, when the colour can be seen to bleed into the darker flight feathers. The goose's head and neck are a warm dark brown, cocoa dusted, and just as the silky grey of its back blends with the brown of its neck, so too the brown neck fades into the goose's paler breast and belly, which are warm buff, darker and blotchier on the flanks. The only bold contrasts on a pinkfoot's plumage are with its pure white vent and its white tail marked with a blue-grey bar of the same colour as its rump. The bill is dark brown, a shade darker than the face with a prominent bright pink spot on the upper mandible. Sometimes this is a neat blob close to the tip of the bill, folding just far enough down the sides to touch the lower mandible. Sometimes this pink stretches back along the bill towards the nostrils. Sometimes, especially on young birds, it is barely there and often on birds feeding in muddy beet fields, it can barely be seen. Thank you so much. It's such a wonderful, wonderful description. Um, and as I, as I hinted at, it sort of, it really does change your perspective of, of how we can see the geese um, focusing in that way that it just becomes more like a painting, I guess, really. And do, did you feel like when you were witnessing the geese, is there a sense of almost kind of becoming goose on some of your excursions? Yes, I, I, I play with that idea once or twice that there were one or two very tough days. There was one day when I'd gone as far as I, as I ever went to, to docking and I was coming back and it was through sleet and a really, really cold grey day. And it had been sleeting most of the day and I was freezing, my telescope was soaking. I hadn't really been seeing the geese very well. And I let myself imagine just what hardship the geese went through every day, just finding enough calories and finding a safe place to roost. And I knew that if I could get safely home, I would have a safe place to roost where I could light the fire. And yet the geese exist always on this knife edge of energy and guns pointed at them and foxes and Arctic foxes up in the tundra and Arctic skewers and great skewers that want to eat their chicks up in the tundra and all these things. So that's one sense in which I allowed myself a kinship with the geese. But in a, in a more spiritual way, they really were my company for seven months. And I had to move through the landscape thinking about where they might be and where I might find them and how best I might meet them and then be able to watch them. So I had to unthink. Now, we as humans, we, we have to move across on a bicycle, on a 44-year-old bicycle especially, you have to move across the landscape um, along the roads. So you're limited in that way. 
but you're searching for the fields that they themselves use. And that gives you a way of looking at the landscape, which at least hints at the way they might look at it. And did the, you, you've spoken there about that your mode of transport was on the bicycle. Did your need for movement come or proceed deciding to connect with the geese in that way or was it always a means of getting to the geese and what did the actual movement itself give you? So the, the bike came about for a number of reasons that I, I had made the decision to make my life as low carbon as possible and I'd given a number of talks about that so people knew that was my stated aim. So I thought I would cycle for that reason. And then of course there was a de facto reason, which was that the only way we were allowed out during those winter lockdowns was to exercise. But in the winter lockdowns, not the first spring lockdown, but the winter lockdowns, we were allowed to exercise as much as we liked. So I could be out on my bike and then after cycling, walking as much as I liked, provided it was all exercise, which it was. So it was a, it was both a decision on the basis of the environment and my position on it, but it was also something that came about through the terms of the lockdowns. And if you'll remember, during the winter, the terms of the lockdowns changed every Tuesday afternoon for different zones of the country. And we all had our heads spinning with the complexity of the lockdowns and the not lockdowns and the half lockdowns and whose house you could go into and how many of you and whether you were allowed to take a squirrel. But, um, <laughs> but, but, um, on my bike, I was allowed out almost, no, the whole winter I was allowed out, but there was a point when the lockdown became, when COVID became much, much worse and the, the lockdowns got stricter. And at that point I stopped stopping to look for the geese and I cycled. So then I suppose at that point, yes, the movement became more significant because I wasn't arriving at a flock of geese and then standing watching them. And was it significant it being your mother's bike as well? It, it kind of struck me that, again, that kind of separation that you had from your parents, did cycling on her bike give you a sense of kind of channeling movement for her that she couldn't do herself? I never consciously had that thought, but it did keep her very close to me. And and obviously through the miracle of WhatsApp and through the times I stood in their garden and we were able to talk, there was a lot of humor around her bike and the fact that I was always out on her bike miles and miles from home and, and she was also cautioning me to be careful but um, I'm looking around the room I'm sitting in and there's a, a painting on the wall painted by my great-grandfather this is my paternal great-grandfather of his sister my great-great-aunt who died at the age of 108 and then facing that, there's a painting of my paternal grandmother when she was a young woman, painted by her father, my great-grandfather. And on the other side of the room, two chairs and a table, which were my maternal grandmothers. And I could go on and on and on. North Norfolk is very much my family's home on both sides. And we're deeply, deeply rooted here. We are, as my lovely friend, uh, Mary Colwell put it, hefted to the land. And it's, and it's true. And I suppose, and the reason I mention those things is because 
wherever I went on my bike, there is story of my family and people my family have known. So there was a closeness despite the distance because I was visiting places which, where my family have chapters of their story, our story. And you also spoke about the fact that your mode of transport was a conscious decision in terms of your low carbon impact as well. Um, and I just wanted to, there's a there's a wonderful quote in from your website, um, low carbon birding, which seems like quite a nice little segue to go into now, which if you don't mind me reading it. Um, it's strangely though, of all my comings out, gay, vegan, tree hugger, rescuer of hopeless animals, the one about which I most often feel judged as woke virtue signaling holier than thou is giving up flying, giving up driving to see birds because it poses, I suppose, the biggest cognitive threat to a deeply entrenched way we have of loving wildlife, of acquiring ever wilder fixes of birds and wildlife. And there's quite a few things to un unpack there, but. Firstly, can you just describe the concept of low carbon birding and is it something that we can all do? Yes, it's absolutely something we can all do and I would argue should do. So if we're not birding, we should be birding because birds are a sacrament of the wild world. They're one of the most visible and easy to find aspects of the natural world and even someone living in the center of a crowded city can see birds. I had to go to London a couple of weekends ago and there were gulls along the river and there were rose-ring parakeets flying overhead and there were pigeons attacking us for our lunch and so if we're not bird watching we should be bird watching because they are they're a, a thread which binds us to the natural world so and they're free and they're everywhere. So yes, we should be. But if we are watching birds, I would argue for a low carbon approach, which is the recognition that the dire situation that we're in environmentally now arises from our burning of fossil fuels and other things. Also our obsession with livestock and felling forests to produce livestock and growing crops to feed to livestock and so on. So those are the main drivers, our industry, our burning fossil fuels, our, our transport. They are huge, huge contributors to our environmental pickle. And it is a dire, dire situation. So low carbon birding is really a conscious attempt to say, I love the natural world. The natural world is my temple or my place I go for solace or my safe place. And I accept it's doing so by burning carbon has a, an irony to it. So I will attempt, it's not a puritanical thing. It's not saying well, we all live in the modern world. We, we have to light our homes, we have to cook, we have to, we have to get to our jobs, we have to do all sorts of things. And that does involve burning carbon. We're a carbon-based organism like, like every other organism. We burn carbon, that's inevitable. But low carbon burning says, I will try to find joy and beauty and fascination in the birds which are accessible to me locally, perhaps by taking a bus or a train or doing the same walk from home or cycling. Or if I go by car, I'll make sure I have a car full of people sharing their carbon footprint, etc. So that we just make a conscious attempt to burn as little carbon 
in the pursuit of our love of the natural world. Mm. And what would you say to people who are dismissive of the impact that individual actions can have? I would, <laughs> rather obscurely, I would quote the French epic poem, the Chanson de Roland, which was written in about the year 1100. Um, and being an epic, the hero is doomed. And he's doomed in a battle which he knows he can't win. But in the knowledge that he can't win, he says, Malvesis simple n'en sera jamais. Let me never be a bad example. And I would argue that we are all hugely powerful in influencing others. Now that's used in a dreadful way by some people. And I'm not saying that low carbon burning is a particularly pious or virtuous thing to do, but we all have the opportunity to live our lives as truly to ourselves as we can. And by so doing, we do inevitably influence others around us by the honest following of our own ethics and the openness to talk about them, but not in a way I would never about veganism, for example, I would never barge at somebody else telling them why I'm vegan, because that's simply none of my business. But should they ask, then I'd be prepared to have an open discussion. And the same is true of low carbon birding or low carbon living, any kind of low carbon approach and local approach to living our lives. If someone wants to know, I'm happy to explain. If someone doesn't want to know, then it's not really my business to have a fight with them. Mm. And do you think it's those complexities um, that sometimes the notions of kind of wokeness or coming out are kind of cast in this sense of being an aggressor in some way that are kind of more as we've spoken about it in terms of birding but do you think that that's reflected more broadly in our society as well oh i i wholly agree on that front it's very very easy to demonize people you don't who are trying their best when you're threatened by something and whether we like it or not whether it's whether it's because we're forced to by nature or because we're forced to by our governments, we are going to have to make radical changes to the way we live. We, we're now cold, although today's been lovely and warm and bright here in Norfolk at least. We've been cold this winter. We've had a couple of really quite cold spells. So we very quickly tripped away from the ghastly drought of last year when the earth was crying for moisture and our crops were crying for moisture and people were terrified of 40 degree temperatures and shutting themselves away and this is going to become commonplace this the, all of the evidence is that we're going to have to get used to this sort of thing and there was a time when there were fires burning all around me here in Norfolk and I thought that might be a time when we woke up to the horror that we have set in motion but we quickly skip back to comfortably forgetting about it. Um, so we're going to have to wake up to it. And whether or not we're threatened by that, we can be dynamic and creative and brave and face into it. 
and look at how we live and look at how we can make advantage, take advantage of the opportunity of changing the way we do things in a positive way. Or we can throw our toys out of the pram and get upset because my, I, I can't go on high carbon holidays 10 times a year or I can't eat beef every single night or those sorts of things. Well, like it or not, whether it's forced on us by governments or forced on us by physics, <laughs> we're going to have to change. Mm. And we've seen that have a massive impact on, on the presence of garden birds. And I can imagine that that's had a big impact on the geese as well in Norfolk um, with the changing climate and the extremes that we've had. And what can we all do in, in our small ways to protect our local birds, the geese in your case, um, but then for, for others, they're their local ones? Aha. Birds specifically, the most important things you can do are if you have control of space, and many people obviously have control of very little space, maybe even so little as a window box, but if you have control of any space, then provide natural or very similar to natural habitat. So shrubs and some long grass with flowers in it and water. Water is far more important than feeding the birds because that will attract birds to drink in your garden. They may see your garden as territory, they may nest. So the more that we can provide natural seeming habitats in our gardens, a little bit messy, a log pile, some bird boxes, some longer grass, some flowers amongst the grass, some shrubs, native species if we can. And if we have flower beds having wild type flowers which flower for as long a season as possible that will all benefit nature so that's one thing we can do but i would say beyond that now is i'm now quoting shakespeare this is from the end of titus andronicus don't go to titus andronicus for a nice time it's a very very violent and bloody play but marcus andronicus says to titus very close to the end of the play now is a time to storm why art thou still and I'm not advocating violence or any kind of direct action, but now is the time for us all to be a great deal less politely British about the environment and about social justice and about the things which worry us. We have to stand up and be seen as witnesses of the environmental catastrophe, we, catastrophe we've caused, of the biodiversity catastrophe we've caused. And so all of us need to align ourselves and ally ourselves with conservation organizations, with environmental organizations. If we care, we have to be seen to care. But we also, in a loving, open-hearted, generous way, need to educate others and talk to others. If if people want to be educated, it's it's not everyone's going to want to read a book about a scrawny boy on an ancient bike watching geese. But if people want to, then I invite them to find out what I think about the world. It's again the idea of um so co-collaboration with nature of standing with nature rather than apart from it I suppose which is it's not an aggressive stance it's a compassionate one <laughs> yes it really is and in the western mindset we've we've moved for a whole range of reasons we've moved away from that being with nature rather than being in dominion over or having dominion over nature which is which has proved to be to our detriment. And we come back there to this notion of, of, of smallness and finding our, 
place in the world. Um, and I wonder what would you say to others who are perhaps struggling to find their sense of belonging and purpose? Hmm. Well, I have no magic wand and no, no great answers, but going back to what you said about moving through landscape, if you can make a walk your own, then it will come to speak to you or a route of run, a running route or a swimming route or whatever. It will talk to you in ways you never thought possible because you will notice, even if you don't know the names of the birds, and I say this, I was asked just today by Norfolk Wildlife Trust, can you lead a bird song identification course in May? And I've been doing that for Norfolk Wildlife Trust for years and years and years, and I love doing it. But I always say to participants, I don't care if you don't know the names. What I want you to do is connect with the sounds and start making the sounds your own and giving them personalities that say something to you. And if you go on a walk, and you just say, today, I'll look at the flowers. And then a week later, you say, I'll look at the flowers again. And something else has come into flower. Oh, that little pink one. I didn't see that last week. I wonder what its name is. I don't care what its name is. I'll call it Charlie. If you go on the same walk again and again, you will, nature will speak to you. And that is extremely humbling and grounding. Yes, but it has to be your story. And I don't care if you don't call a great tit a great tit. I can teach you the song of a great tit and teach you a mnemonic that makes you know that it's a great tit. But if you're by yourself and no one's telling you, you can still love that sound. It can be part of your route without ever seeing the bird or knowing what it is. It's just, it's a songster that you may give some outlandish personality to but it's still a marker on your path through the landscape. And that links quite nicely to um, some of my final questions, because I know that you are a lover of, well, you've mentioned Shakespeare already this evening um, and of classical music. So I thought we'd play a little kind of mini desert island discs <laughs> and ask for three recommendations um, for music and then three recommendations or some good reads for people? Oh my goodness me, that is a mighty, mighty ask. Um, <laughs> I said I wasn't going to stress you with tough questions. This no, is, no, I'm... it's not stressful. I have so much music that I would like to share. Um, I think, so Bach is my number one composer. I, I adore his music. Because it's the geese, I would, say the B minor mass. And there's a very specific reason. I adore the B minor mass. I listen to it again and again and again. But in, I forget if it's his very first book, but one of his very early books um, called Morning Flight, Peter Scott, and this was from the 1940s, when he was still a shooter, uh, Peter Scott describes the great waves of pink-footed geese flying into roost as being like the sanctus from the B minor mass. And so whenever I see green flocks of pink-footed geese, I hear in my head the sanctus of the B minor mass, and that's very, very, very special to me. Um, so that would be my number one. That's the one I'd leap into the waves to rescue in the uh, Desert Island Discs way. I then would have to go with some 
Beethoven, I think, who would be my second composer I can't really live without. Um, and I think the Ninth Symphony, which is so deliciously bonkers and thrilling and creative and modern for its time. And I, it's, it's masterful, absolutely masterful. And then the other composer I can't really live without is Wagner. And I think, well, the Ring Cycle is where I would go again and again and again. And I think I would go with Die Valkyra, the the Valkyra, um, the Srinagar uh, Die Valkyra, the second of the four operas, um, which is just wondrous, wondrous. So then, then it was three books, wasn't it? Well, in a sense, my books might be a little cliched. They're all really, really well-known and well-loved nature writing. Um, Nan Shepherd, The Living Mountain, which is exactly about walking the same routes time after time after time. And I love the way she tells the story of the same mountain through different aspects of the mountain. So each chapter looks at a different thing that happens on the mountains, the plants and the geology. It's a masterful, masterful book, so far its time, that she put in a drawer for decades and then showed a publisher. And it is, it is ravishingly beautiful. Another ravishingly beautiful book, which is again about mountains. Uh, you don't get a lot of cycling for geese in mountains. Um, the Snow Leopard by Peter Matheson, which is the story of his journey to the Himalayas with George Schaller, the great, great, great mammal biologist, um, after his wife had just died of cancer and their marriage had not been terribly easy, at least not in the later years. And it's a, it's a story of mourning and regret that they hadn't made their marriage work better. It's a story of Buddhist exploration of the self. And it's a story of this vast, cold, bright, high mountain landscape and of the snow leopard, which they never see. And yet is present in every word of the book. It's, it's absolutely gorgeous and I adore it. And the final one would be Wildwood, A Journey Through Trees by Roger Deakin, because he was, he was a troubled and strange man, but he was also a deep, deep thinker and lover of the environment and a great writer. His prose is so, it fizzes with exuberance and creativity and it's, it's a wonderful, wonderful book. These are some brilliant recommendations and, and some of my favourites, particularly the, the Nan Shepherd. Um, but also just puts me in mind of the fact, you know, we, we've talked about living with nature, but also some of the words that you used in conjunction with the geese, that sense of haunting as well. Um, we, are, we are haunted by it um, too in the world. And it brings me to my final question, which is one that I ask all my guests, which is probably the most difficult. <laughs> um, what does joy mean to you? <sighs> it has a number of faces. My nephews and nieces. Time with my nephews and nieces is always joy. 
I love them with all my heart. And there's a double benefit there, which is that they have lots of dogs in their households. And so there will be a pile of nephews and nieces and dogs. And that that's one face of joy. And the other is to be out on the Norfolk coast with friends, talking about nature, walking through nature, thinking about how we're going to face this future of change and challenge, but doing so. I was out with the novelist, uh, novelist, the writer, nature writer and Guardian columnist, Patrick Barkham and another friend of ours a couple of days ago, walking a long, long walk across the coast with their children and dogs and, and it was joy. I am so glad that that's something that you've experienced so recently as well. And that just sounds like an occasion to bottle and put on the shelf and, and bring out on those rainy days, really. <laughs> and I just want to thank you because this conversation is one that I really want to bottle and hold close to my heart as well, because I've just learned so much and discovered so much about connection paying attention and really the the importance of new perspectives on things that we can we can take for granted but really are the source of an origin of our of our joy so thank you so much for sharing those reflections with me and I can't wait to read the book in full as well <laughs> um and where's the best place for people to connect with you to follow your story and to also um purchase the book too well, um, my Twitter is at the Marsh Tit. Um, my Instagram is at the Willow Tit. By the time I tardily came to join um, Instagram, at the Marsh Tit had gone, and so I chose this, the the near identical Willow Tit. So I'm at the Marsh Tit on Twitter, at the Willow Tit on Instagram. My website is themarshtit.com, and. I'm grateful to anyone who wishes to buy my book from whichever source. However, my dear, dear friends at Wild Sounds and Books who are based here in North Norfolk, the reason I love them so much is that they give very generously to conservation, both in the UK and around the world. And you can know that if you're purchasing a book from Wild Sounds, you will also be supporting nature here in Norfolk, they support Norfolk Wildlife Trust, but around the world, they're the species champion for the critically endangered spoonbilled sandpiper as well. So if you did want to purchase my book, I'd be delighted if you could do so from Wild Sounds and Books. Wonderful. I'll put those links in the show notes for you as well, so that people know where to look and find you on either tit account on Instagram. Well, find me on either of my tits. Thank you very much. <laughs> We had such a beautiful conversation and then just a completely pathetic ending. <laughs> but thank you so much again. And I hope perhaps one day we'll, we, can, we can share a walk and, and, and watch some geese together and um, listen to some songs. I would really love that. <laughs> I would love that too. It would be an absolute honour and it's been a real joy to be here this evening with you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. 
I am so grateful to the community that is growing around the podcast. And if you've enjoyed today's episode, I would so appreciate if you can share it with your communities and help spread the message of support, perseverance and joy further. If you have any feedback or suggestions for future guests, you can find me on Instagram at running underscore on underscore joy. I'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next time for Running on Joy.